and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing the challenges and opportunities of digital transformation in banking, the changing competitive landscape, the importance of innovation, and the keys to changing legacy leadership paradigms and cultures. As traditional banking organizations play catch-up with both fintech firms and big tech providers, the need to become a digital bank has never been more important. Driven by new technologies, but managed by humans, the seamless integration of data, advanced analytics, a modernized back office, and restructured delivery channels will define the winners and losers. To get a perspective on how well traditional financial institutions are responding to the challenges of becoming digital, I am fortunate to be joined today by one of the foremost authorities on the history and future of banking, Chris Skinner. Chris is known by almost everyone in the financial services industry as a best-selling author, prolific blogger, and a highly sought-after speaker. He is also a great friend who has supported my endeavors from the start. Hey, Chris, it's great to have you on the show today. Uh, It's been a long time since we've seen each other in person, but we obviously follow each other quite a bit on Twitter, LinkedIn. I, I read your articles on The Financier, and and you probably pick up some of mine on The Financial Brand. Yeah, I do. And I, I know you've disrupted yourself, that you're now Slim Jim. And for every pound you've lost, I've gained one. Thank you. Well, you know, if I can send them overseas, <laughs> I don't I don't care where they land. It's just got somebody's picked them up. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I, I mean, I'm expanding my empire. You're slimming your, yours down. But um, it's great to talk to you again, Jim. Yeah. You know, you recently got interviewed by our team at The Financial Brand about one of the most debated questions on our industry, and that is how do you become a digital bank? Without repeating the entire interview, which is obviously available on the Financial Brand website, what are the keys to becoming a digital bank from your perspective? Well, I've spent decades dealing with banks around technology, and in particular, obviously, in the last decade, it's become fintech and digital and popular. But to be honest, technology and finance has been driving the industry for decades. And about two years ago, having written so many books about how technology is changing banking, I got fed up with hearing everyone saying that banks don't understand technology because they do understand technology. They've been dealing with it for decades. The issue today is that it's not about the technology. It's about the culture and the organization to embrace technology. And so I went through the last couple of years interviewing people at sea level within five banks about how they're dealing with digital and transformation and the cultural and the organizational and the mindset change. And from those 40 interviews, I've got about 30 key things that I've picked up that fall into four major buckets. And the four buckets are working out what to do, how to do it, doing it, and then doing it better forever, which is continuous improvement. And I summarize it as in digital transformation, it's a transformation that if you don't get it right, then you will disappear. Um, It doesn't mean you'll die. You'll probably get acquired, merged into another organization over time. And I think the best way to summarize this is with Charles Darwin's view of the survival of the fittest, which is it's not about being fit the fastest, the strongest, the most intelligent. It's about being the most adaptable to change. But working out what to change and how to change is actually the hardest thing. Because if you change in the wrong way and get it wrong, then you won't survive. And I think a lot of banks are getting it wrong. And what I mean by this is that if a bank thinks that digital is a project, a function, 
with a budget and with a leader that's delegated by the executive team to be the chief digital officer, they will fail because that's not digital transformation. That's treating digital as a channel. What you have to do is treat digital as a complete change of the company, its culture, its people, its organization, its structure, its products, its services, everything. And there's not many financial institutions that are doing that well. And the ones I picked out that are doing it well, the key lesson for me is that the executive team are half digital people. They you know, have a strong background in dealing with technology and telecommunications, and they have a mandate from the board to change the bank and not focus on shareholder revenue and profit and return. They focus on digital transformation and organizational change. That's a key mandate they've been given, which I just don't see in many of the other financial firms. You know, and does that put what I'll call the mid-tier banks at a tremendous disadvantage? Because most of the mid-tier banks are led by, and their board consists of people that have been in the industry forever, are continuing to do it the same way. And, you know, as you mentioned, most of those boards are not consisting of technology people and tech um, engineers, things of this nature. And, you know, many of the leaders have come up through the ranks and doing it the bank's way. Um, is this putting probably the mid-tier banks at a tremendous disadvantage more than even the bigger ones and the smallest? It's easy to take a swipe at institutions generally if they don't have technology savvy, digital savvy people at the leadership level of the organization. But a lot of banks, mid-tier and tier one, are delegating digital to people below executive level. And those are the ones I'm pointing out specifically and saying they will fail at digital transformation because transformation requires leadership. And you and I both know this because we both talk about it. You have to have a vision, you have to have a burning platform, you have to have a change program, you have to have a focus upon exactly what to change and how to change and making that happen. And the mid-tier banks do struggle with this because the mid-tier banks, you know, if you're a tier one bank, then even if you're slow to change, the fact is you're still a tier one bank and you've got the billions of capital and millions of customers to make that happen. If you're a really small bank, you can pivot really quickly. And we've seen quite a lot of community banks and thrifts and credit unions in the US doing quite a good job of doing that. Not all of them, but you know, there's some like CBW and Radius that I see quite often talking about digital and doing you know, new things. If you're a mid-tier bank, then often you're caught in the headlights because you're not big enough to deal with the capital and the markets that the tier one guys are dealing with, and yet you're not small enough to pivot quickly. So you end up being acquired and merged. Um, there's a few mid-tiers that are doing some interesting things, but I think you know, if, if you go to the five banks that I picked for my last project which around how are they doing digital transformation, they're five of the top 50 biggest value banks in the world. And what I focused on is how do you make a big company change? And if these big companies can make those changes happen, there's no reason a mid-tier company can't. They just need to get the right factors in place. And so when you look at the traditional financial services firms, who do you believe to be considered truly doing the best as being a digital bank? What banks stand out? Sure. I mean, I took the list of the top 50 highest value banks in the world two years ago and ticked the boxes next to five of them that I felt from media and external perspective were doing well. So I had JP Morgan Chase, which may surprise you, but I think that Jamie Dimon and the organization does get technology. 
BBVA, who for 20 years have been doing a lot around digital transformation, ING, and with ING Direct and ING as an organization, they're very much a technology-focused organization. DBS in Singapore, which has won the best digital bank in the world, now the best bank in the world from Euro money and over the past five years. And one that wasn't on my radar, but when I was speaking to friends in Asia, said, you must talk to China Merchants Bank, which is a Chinese consumer resale bank based in Shanghai. So uh, I included them in the process. Sorry, then Shenzhen. And all five of them have given me interesting lessons. A lot of things that are consistent across all five, no matter what geography we're talking about. And some things that are different by geography, but of the things that are consistent, there's about 30 major steps, lessons that came out of them that are consistent across all five. It's interesting. With every one of the banks you mentioned, and we just did research on innovation in retail banking, we realized that there's a tremendous correlation, without getting into the chicken or the egg theory, between innovative banks and banks that are the most advanced in digital transformation. In addition, they tend to be the most successfully financial. They seem to get the best customer experience scores, and they're using the most advanced technologies. And did you see the same thing within your organizations? It sounds like you did because, you know, when I think of innovation, you do think of the BBVAs. You do think of the INGs. You do think of the DBS of the world. Have you seen the same thing? Well, a lot of external people have picked up on these banks that we're talking about and said, yeah, they seem to get it. And yet what's interesting is in local markets or amongst some competitors of those institutions, they say, oh, it's just marketing. It's just PR, making it look like they understand this. But what's interesting when you go inside these companies is the consistency of dialogue amongst the executive team and the real commitment to make change happen and digital transformation happen. So by way of example, the BBVA operational leadership executive team is half telecoms and technology people. You know, they have a head of data, a head of engineering, a head of customer experience, a CIO, a chief executive who's from a telecoms background, as is the chairman. So they have a real balance of banking and digital people. When you look at DBS, then a lot of external people say, again, it's just marketing. But what amazed me is I met about 20 people inside the bank. And I just remember one conversation specifically because it surprised me. They were all consistent talking about customer journeys, user experiences, a long journey through digital to um, convert the bank from proprietary to open to cloud. I met the chief financial officer. And after about half an hour of the conversation, she hadn't mentioned shareholder return or profit or return on equity, return on investment once. And I just said, why aren't you mentioning the financials? You know, you're the CFO. And she said, well, as long as you focus on the customer journey and the customer experience and delivering the best that it can be, that all follows. Now, I've always believed that myself, which is happy customers make happy business. But they really live that mantra, you know, their discussion and their whole being is about joyful banking. And you go, joyful banking just sounds stupid. They talk about invisible banking. You go, how can you talk about invisible banking? Because the bank has to be visible. Otherwise, what? how does the customer know that they're a customer of the bank? And they just say, it's about the customer and the experience. And they don't want to think about banking. It has to be invisible. But what they want is when they have to think about banking for it to be joyful. Yeah, it's a really different way of thinking. Yeah, and what's interesting is, and you're bringing it up subtly in, in the fact that you've gone through these organizations, 
it's my impression that everybody within the organization speaks the same language, where they all are passionate about what they're doing. And if you ask them, what does your bank represent? They all will come back with the same answer. Now, I'm not too sure how many banks have that type of uniformity in message and in the view of what they think they're doing day to day. That makes life a lot easier, I think, for these organizations when there's uniformity of message and brand within the organization and in the way people talk. Yeah, it's an absolutely critical factor. And it's all about communication, making sure that everyone has a playbook and a songbook that they can all live by. I think a lot of issues in a lot of organizations is that they don't have strong leadership. And then even if they have strong leadership, they don't have great communication. These five banks have both strong leadership and great communication. And it's based around not all of these banks, but certainly I'd say three of them had a, a crisis experience. The crisis being that something had happened that made the board sit up and say, we're going to fail in the strategy that we set out. So we have to change the strategy and we have to do something completely different. So there was a burning platform of change. And that's one of the key lessons that if you don't have a disturbance in the organization and uncomfortableness in the organization, that's very hard to make people to change. But then equally, if you disturb people and say, we've got a crisis, we're going to die, then you have to give them a way to see how they're going to live, a vision. You know, this is where we have to go to make sure that we survive. And so they have a burning platform, a crisis, and equally a strong vision of where they have to go. And then within that strong vision, they have a value and a cultural layout of these are the things we believe, this is how we behave, these are our aspirations, these are our goals, these are the things that everyone should live by. And a lot of it's wrapped up in really simple to remember acronyms. You know, so we want to be first as in friendly, informed, responsive, service oriented and trustworthy. You know, first stands for something. It's not just being first, it's you know that we're friendly, informed, service oriented and trustworthy. And then equally and this is a bit that I hadn't even thought about until it was raised by a couple of the banks, that they, as an executive team, were given the focus on transforming the bank because there had been a crisis to achieve transformation. So the board said to the chairman and chief executive, you have to focus on transformation around digital and customer and forget about shareholder and profit. Now, this is an interesting aspect because it hadn't even entered my mind because most banks are focused on shareholder and profit. And if you have that as your regime, you will only ever do business as usual. You will not transform. Whereas these guys had to transform. They had a crisis. They had a reason why it had to happen. And the only way you transform is if you forget about business as usual and focus on business as unusual. And that's why that board mandates to say, focus on the customer and digital and not on shareholder and profit was an integral part of their organizational change. Well, it's interesting because right now, you know, one of the things that I talk about that's the biggest hurdle around transformation, the fact that there's not a bank in the world today that's not making money. And so the pain, as you refer to it, is not there unless something major comes up. But you know, most of these legacy financial institutions and legacy bankers say, why do I want to change now when things are going so well? And you, you keep on trying to talk to them about the horizon's a whole lot shorter than it's ever been. But there's a challenge of if things are going well, why disrupt the cart? And you sit there and just shake your head and go, because it's not going to stay this way forever. 
Well, I'll give you a fictional example, but it's based on a real-life case study that I'm very familiar with. But I'm going to change the names and the countries to suit what we're talking about. So imagine that, um, let's say, ICBC, the Chinese bank, announces tomorrow that they're acquiring Citigroup. What would be the reaction within America and within Citibank and within Citigroup to that announcement of a Chinese bank is acquiring an American bank? It would be, I would imagine, horror, um, shock. So I actually know a bank that did that, not an American bank, it was actually a European bank. And it's a Danish bank that had a executive team meeting of the top 200 managers of the bank. And that morning announced that they'd been acquired by a Swedish bank. And the Danish and the Swedish have this thing. <laughs> so you can imagine it's the same as like the Chinese and the Americans. Um, so to announce that the Danish bank had been acquired by a Swedish bank was like horror shock. Oh, my God. And the whole day was spent focusing on what that would mean, how they'd need to change, what would they do in structure and focus and organization. And it really created an impetus and a purpose to rethink the strategy. And then in the afternoon, having made the announcement first thing in the morning, the chief executive said, I'm lying. But it got you thinking, didn't it? (laughs) Wow. It disrupts you. Yeah. So you create a false disruption, but you get people to move into focusing on what should they do different rather than just doing business as the same. Then you do run into those situations where two banks come together, they merge, they put one person to the other. And is that even the impetus to dig your heels in to make sure you get your position at the other bank or at the new bank? And so basically you you run on your old history because being different may not be the best desired chance at that point. But what's bad is you then get a bigger bad bank in many cases. You know, we we talked about traditional banks, but we have to obviously get into the whole area of challenger banks or bank challengers, if you were, and versus traditional banks. You know, obviously in the European Union and, and your area, there's a whole lot of challenger banks. And many of them have now been in existence for four to five years. And while we may have dismissed them in the past because there wasn't scale, people were putting their secondary money into an account, you know, all of a sudden the trust factor of these organizations has gone up. If for no other reason, then they've stood the test of time. What do you see as the trajectory, I should say, of, let's say, the major challenger banks in Europe right now? Well, I'm a big fan of innovation and change, and I'm a big fan of the challenger banks. I think their challenge is obviously to be profitable and to grow into substantial organizations. And a few of them are starting to achieve that, which is why they're getting unicorn status. But if you look at the unicorn status, what seems to be happening is on a valuation model, each customer they've gained is worth a million dollars which kind of isn't really the sort of model that I think we'll see long term. So that's one challenge that they've got, which is to work out a sustainable model of growth uh, rather than a projectile model of growth based on future valuations and targets. The main thing about a challenger bank that I've learned from the UK model, and this is now coming through in many other parts of Europe and Asia, and also I think will come through in the USA, is that because they really understand the customer journey and the user experience and they've built a business around that from scratch, that they are leveraging data intimacy in a really nice way. And they do it in a way which no incumbent bank could do because incumbent banks don't have the data architecture to do this because 
incumbent banks have a fragmented data architecture based on years of mergers, acquisitions and legacy systems implementations. These banks don't have any of that. And as a result of data intimacy, because of a cleansed data architecture, the challenger banks are very good at leveraging customer intimacy through artificial intelligence and data analytics. And what that actually means in practice is that if I have a transaction on my old bank, I only see a truncated record of where it was and who it was with. And often it doesn't make sense because it's in a language that's based on the old bank's traditional systems. Whereas what I get from challenger banks through APIs and Google Maps and Stripe and other partners is huge amounts of knowledge about every transaction I make that I can delve down deep into to find out not just that I paid $40 at a store, but the store on this street corner at that time on that date with a photograph and a click-through. And what that means, and there's lots of other things I can add to this, but what it means in practice is that a lot of people now, having tested the waters with the challenger banks, are switching to the challenger banks and saying, you know, these guys give me far more than my old bank. But they're not actually shutting down their old bank account. What they're doing is they're leaving their boring old bank that gives them boring old transactions with their boring old bills, you know, their tax, utilities, their rent payments, whatever, and moving all the life stuff to the new bank because it gives them all the analytics they want and links that they want to how they're living their lives and spending money. Um, so all of the data about my everyday is with Challenger Bank. All of the data about my boring old life is with Boring Old Bank. You know, it's interesting because you talk about now the integration of data, analytics, life, life stage and lifestyle segregation, and, and then financial services. Well, in that whole category, you, you can't help but mention the, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Ubers, the Amazons, and the Apples. And each one of them has recently announced new forays into new areas of financial services. Do you see this trend continuing or do you see that regulators may eventually take a stand against the big tech firms offering financial services? Yeah, there's kind of five layers of question in that question, Jim, as you may know from asking it. And you also know that I blogged about this a lot. But basically, I've never been worried from a bank's perspective about Google, Amazon, Facebook and Apple being in banking. And the reason being is that um, if they ever moved into banking, it would kill them. I mean, they are fast, agile, innovative organizations that are tech-focused with light regulation. And so suddenly to move into a heavily regulated, heavily capitalized, slow to change, difficult to maneuver industry would just be like sort of putting them in a straitjacket and leaving them in a a jail cell. Uh, They'll just die. So it makes absolute sense then to say, you know what? We're going to focus on the customer front end, the data at the front end, the experience of the customer front end, and then partner with the guys who understand the hyper-capitalized, heavily regulated stuff at the back end, like JP Morgan Chase and Citi and Goldman Sachs. It makes absolute sense. And I've written lots about this. And my model of finance is based around three companies, the back office manufacturing organization, which is the factory for admin and service the middle office infrastructure organization, which is all about the links between front and back office, and the front office user experience and customer and distribution and retaining capability. And that front office, so many people said for decades now that you can't give that away. We have to own the customer. 
but no one owns the customer except the customer. And so maybe we finally woken up and recognized that you know we can partner with people like Google and Amazon and Facebook and Apple and that they can have the customer front end. But when you lose a payment, where's Google's telephone number? You know, for support, who are you going to call? You know, the back end, the product manufacturing admin and service will never come from an organization that doesn't get the regulation, doesn't deal with customers and only deals with them through digital platforms. You know, you have to have a back end that can provide a better service, both physically and digitally. And equally add on to that, that when you get to the back end, you're dealing with the regulatory structures of the Federal Reserve, the states, the OCC, and the many others that get involved in how that operates. You know, that has five times more regulation than technology. You know, Bank of America Merrill Lynch actually came up with a chart, which I use in all my presentations, saying that the average American bank deals with 128,000 regulations. The average American technology company deals with 27,000. Do you really want to get involved in five times more regulation? No. And that's the reason why big tech will never get into big banking. They'll partner with big banking to do finance. So payments has already been almost completely disrupted by alternative providers. Do you see another area of financial services that's really at risk due to the ability for alternative providers to provide a better experience? I mean, it's not just payments. It's most aspects of finance has a specialist company doing something amazingly well, from robo-advisors to credit and lending. You know, almost every aspect of finance has a company that's doing something better than traditional banks have been doing it, either through peer-to-peer connectivity or through new business models or new visions and ideas of how to use APIs and apps and analytics to do this. And I think the key thing is two aspects. One, banking is needed to be delivered by banks. I don't see anyone else delivering banking. When Bill Gates said, we need banking, but we don't need banks anymore, he was wrong. Um, He said that 25 years ago. Since he said that 25 years ago, banks have got bigger and nearly all aspects of their markets. And it's naivety of technologists, including Bill Gates, to think that we need banking, but we don't need banks to do that anymore. Because Banks do one thing that no one else does, and that's act as trusted intermediators of money and trusted stores of money because they're regulated to do that and licensed to do that by the government. It's like a license to kill, a license to bank. You know, once you have that, it's very different to doing payments, lending, credit or mortgages or savings or investments. It's a key piece that's all about intermediation of trust between people who don't trust each other with money. And a lot of people don't get that piece of finance. That is the core of banking. The core of banking is not payments, lending, saving, investments. They're things that we add on to that core of trust intermediation. And so when we talk about disruption and disintermediation, sure, specialist companies can do these other areas, but they can't replace that core area of trust intermediation. But what I keep saying, and you all know this because you read my blog and you know me, is that banks really need to go out and look at the companies that are doing the other bits today with technology and see how they're doing it and whether they're doing it better. Because there's 12,000 or more fintech startups worldwide that are doing one of these things with an app API or some data analytics. 
probably a lot better than a bank could do it. So there's 12,000 companies focusing on manufacturing, processing or retailing, savings, investments, payments and lending. And what a bank should think about is, do they really think one company doing 12,000 things can do it better than 12,000 companies doing one thing? And that's my main message to banks today, that in a digital world, the financial institutions should focus on the ecosystem, the platforms, the partnerships, the structures, and say, if there are companies doing an app, API, or analytic really well in the areas outside our core area, which is trust of intermediation through a license, should we partner with them? Should we work with them? Should we cooperate with them? Should we invest in them? Should we acquire them? Or should we copy them and imitate them? I mean, Work out what to do, but stop trying to do what you've always done, which is to try and do everything. Because one company that does 12,000 things averagely will never beat 12,000 companies doing one thing brilliantly. Which actually, getting back to your first comment, it's really what differentiates those top five banks that you've talked about from all the others is they have not been hesitant or shy about building partnerships, making investments, uh, buying partnering, the whole ramification and not saying they don't have to build from within, no matter how big they are. You know, finally, and I can't believe these these podcasts go so quickly when they have these kinds of discussions. Um, you know, every year I do the retail banking trends and predictions for the financial brand. And what bold trend or prediction do you have for 2020? Ah, I mean, 2020, it's only a year. Um, so we've been talking year on year for a long time about radical things. Nothing's radical that's going to happen next year, except for my new book. Um, but I think one of the things that we'll see next year, particularly in finance, is the maturing of artificial intelligence from an embryonic idea to a real technology in practical deployment. You know, right now, most people think AI in banking is a chatbot, but a chatbot to me is about as um, mature as a technology and a view of AI as um, maybe a children's baby's toy. It's not something that is mature at all. It's way too basic in its operation. And I think what we'll see in 2020 is a lot of banks starting to use artificial intelligence more intelligently to do more intelligent things. And what it frustrates me right now is that most AI even if it is being used in something more advanced than a basic chatbot within a bank, it's being used for fraud and risk analytics. Traditional ways, the way they've always used it, yeah. It's not being used for customer focus and for customer intelligent service and customer intelligent marketing. And I think customer intelligent marketing and customer intelligent service based on holistic data architectures using applied artificial intelligence will start to become a much bigger platform of focus next year. So, Chris, how do people get a hold of you and follow you? Well, I blog every single day at thefinancer.com. I've been doing that for over a decade, and uh, there's a strong following on there. Last year, most of my blogs were about everything to do with fintech and technology. In fact, it's been interesting that this year, the top two blogs are around how blockchain and fintech are struggling, or are they? You have to read the blog to find out. That's great. And You've got, had a lot of books. Can you talk a little bit about just, you know, the last book you put out? Oh, sure. I mean, in a nutshell, um, in 2014, Digital Bank came out, which is about how to create a digital bank, whether you're an incumbent or a startup. In 2016, uh, Value Web came out, which is all about the 
idea of blockchain and the mobile network and the internet creating free, fast, frictionless real-time payments and finance. And Digital Human came out in 2018, last year, which is about how everything as a digital connectivity platform is allowing anyone on planet Earth to get access to finance, to trade and transact. And then next year in spring, doing digital is all about lessons from leaders, the banks that are actually doing digital transformation, how they're doing it and what you can learn from them. Well, Chris, you know, this went way too fast, but it does show that we have to get together more often because these conversations are great. Usually we have them over dinner or drinks, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, next year being able to travel and see you again and uh, see your family. But uh, you have a great rest of the week, and uh, thanks for being on the show. And you, Jim, vice versa. I hope to see you more, and um, equally, I'm sure we'll do this again. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, just rated as a top 10 banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, and don't forget to give us a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Bridget Coyne, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week. Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that asks you what you want to be when you grow up so you can graduate into retirement with a purpose and a passion, whether you're 25, 85, or any age in between. Gain actionable financial and mindset tips from your favorite authors, podcasters, and influencers to help you reach that exciting next chapter. Listen now and start building your path to financial freedom and reframing what retirement can mean to you. This is your host, Eric Brotman, reminding you, don't retire, graduate.